0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one
1: source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello everyone, my name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod, and with me, as always, is Maxwell Vogue. Hey Max. Hey Joris, how you doing today? I'm great. I'm great. I'm at the seaside in uh, Spain, and the sun's shining a little bit, so I'm very, very happy. That sounds lovely.
2: It's also a lovely day here in New York City, so I I can't complain
1: either. Okay. Who do we have
2: on the 3D Pod today?
1: Well, actually, we have a return guest, uh, uh, and that is Tim Bell. So, Tim, welcome back. Thanks, guys. Great to be here again. Uh, so well, we know about everything there is to know about Tim already. Well, and, uh, but there's a lot more. But Tim came on uh, a couple of episodes ago, uh, ago, where we talked about 3D printing more generally, and he talked about uh, his journey in additive so far. And then he decided to join Meld Manufacturing, and Meld is a company that I am completely fascinated with. And uh, what they essentially do is well, they have a they can make giant metal parts. Like I don't want to take a lot of the surprise away from Tim when he starts, but we're talking about like several meters by several meter parts. And what they do is they have a uh, uh, it's a it's a deposit it's a solid state deposition technology uh that is very different metall- metallurgically as all the other 3D printing processes. And it also could be something that is like really inexpensive and could make really large scale parts. Like one of the things they're doing is tank hulls, large parts for ships. So what MELD could do, well, MELD is, I think the technology is going to be super interesting. And also what MELD can do is stuff that other people cannot do. And that's to make really large, uh, really, you know, kind of really functional components of several meters or more. So so I could totally understand why, why Tim would uh, go to do that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that's why we're, we're going to be talking to him about MELD and how it works and, and what the opportunity is there. So uh, welcome to the show again, Tim. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Tell us about MELD, because you just joined, but we know that Nancy Hardwick founded the company years ago. So did you know a little bit about the, the origin story of MELD that's time?
0: Yeah. So um, when I was with Siemens, I started working with Nancy, uh, actually, on the jointless hall program that you spoke of about the the Army Hall tank hall. Uh, and then... Interestingly enough, in a previous life, I worked with one of the inventors of the technology when he was with a different company. So I've known about the Meld technology for quite a few years, hadn't really been exposed to it physically until the last two years when I was with Siemens. And then starting January 1st, I came on board with Meld. Um, Meld has experienced an, a, an amazing amount of growth and it's uh, it's. Nancy needed more people to help steer the ship because there's so much going on.
1: Fair enough. That sounds really good. And so, first of all, okay, so I've kind of told you a little bit, but um, tell us a little bit more. Like, how does it work, first off? Sure, sure. So, as we know,
0: most additive manufacturing 3D printing processes melt a material or take a material to a phase change and typically that is through some type of energy whether it be laser or electricity or electron beam and the difference here is or the difference with that is when you when you do a phase change in the material you've now disrupted the the mechanical properties in the chemistry and a lot of those materials have to be redesigned so that the output from the machine meets the specification. So uh, a good example is in powder bed fusion. A lot of people talk about 17,4 pH. Well, it's not really 17,4 pH until after it's been printed and after it's been heat treated. With the meld process, you have a couple different things going on. A, you can start with traditional bar stock. So off the shelf extruded bar, uh, I say extruded because a lot of it's aluminum or titanium, uh, but rolled or extruded bar. Uh, that you would normally use to machine components. You feed it into the system. And what happens is the system rotates the bar and then puts force on the bar to create plastic deformation. So you're not going through a phase change where you've made it to liquid. You're just going soft enough that it's like, um, I don't wanna say icing, but when you watch it happen, that's kind of what it looks like is icing oozing out. Now, it's interesting that when you watch the process physically, it looks extremely simple. When you start digging into the technical side of it, it is massively complex. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, everyone sees it and says, oh, my gosh, you know, you can you can print so much material. And that is absolutely correct. You know, we've seen deposition rates in 6061 at 30 pounds an hour. But the detail resolution of the process is still very large, meaning, you know, a a typical deposition is going to be inch and a quarter wide, maybe inch and a half wide. So you still got to machine a lot of it off. Which is okay is it, because
2: sorry, is it still a layer process then? Or no, you're saying Yeah, it is, is
0: layer by layer. It's so layer, so layer.
2: Okay. But it's yeah, an inch and a half like, thick layer.
0: Inch and a half wide.
2: Or wide, okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, could be up to two millimeters thick or you know, eighth inch or you know, eighty thousandths thick. So the layers are very thick, so your detail resolution is very low. But the core Users that are coming to us are those who are struggling to get large forgings and large castings. Um, in the defense area, you know, some of these interesting aluminums and titaniums that aren't the normal numbers that everybody hears, they have three to four year lead times on these forgings. And on a meld machine, these forgings can be printed in a matter of days using off the shelf materials. And the beauty of it is the off the shelf material chemistry and mechanical properties that go in are typically exactly what, what you get, what the yield is. So some materials don't even,
2: you're not doing a full state change, right? You're not, you're not, as you said, you're not going to liquid and then coming back and letting it harden and potentially get impurities and stuff like that.
0: Some, some materials you're still going to need to heat treat because the heat treat is, is creating a temper or it's creating some uh, grain uh, reconfiguration that's needed for a specific you know, high yield part. Uh, But most materials can come right out of the machine and and be a spec material-wise, which is just fantastic.
2: But how do the layers bond if you're not not melting the material? That's the interesting (laughs) thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. You know, as you're creating, you're creating enough heat to plasticize the material. And when you do that, it's also heating up the previous layers. So those layers bond, uh, I don't want to say atomically, but they bond on a mechanical – not even a mechanical. They bond grain-wise. There we go. Okay. There's the macro word that I'm looking at. So the grains will bond together. Interestingly enough, and this is one of the things that blew me away when I first came here was imagine you have a diameter that has two flanges. And the flanges are radial. And, like, maybe there's a bolt hole pattern in that flange where somebody would bolt this ring to something. The underside of the flange, with the meld process, you can actually print on the top side of the flange, but push the material through to the back side of the flange.
1: What? <laughs> that's Not that digest Because yeah, okay. <laughs> I had to, okay. and then can I had to go a, pull up the paper. Can we, can we, do, a, can we do a replay? Uh no, yeah, okay, go on, go on. Yeah. 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 Can you, you just, yeah.
2: <laughs> so
0: okay, let's think of it this way. Let's say we're 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 printing on a plate and let's suspend that plate up in the air on two blocks on the ends. If I do a that position on that plate and the thickness of the plate is, I don't know, let's just call it quarter inch. As we're softening up that previous material, we can actually force material through it to where it comes out the backside. My mind was literally blown.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Are you deforming the previous layer in order to push the material through? Or is it almost like, you'll forgive me, almost like a sieve in the material, the material is kind of coming through and then forming it's, on the other it's side? It's
0: deforming it. So you're pushing that, that parent it. material down and then filling what you just pushed down with a new layer. Okay. Think of it as like peening,
2: working at the same time that you're. Yes,
0: laying down almost like hair. if you had a if you had a peening hammer and you were peening a piece yeah, of sheet yeah. metal and you were creating bumps. Well, as you're doing that, you're filling those divots in.
1: Wow, that's crazy! It's
0: it's it's, it's mind blowing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you know, it also means we can make composites, right? We could just uh, make composites, but we can make really interesting yes. composites because if if uh, like. So tell us a little bit more about that, because that's immediately what I'm thinking of when when you get that example. Yeah, so
0: dissimilar materials are not a problem. So creating CMCs by layering, it's it's not even an issue. As long as the two materials, plastization temperature ranges are somewhat close, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you're going to be able to do it. Um, And and a lot of that's still theoretical. We've done aluminum on copper and we've done copper on stainless and we've done copper on titanium. Um, So we've done a lot of these things just as developments. They're not production components. They're not, nobody's flying with that hardware yet. Um, But the range of materials with this process is, it's just mind blowing. I mean, we all know that the space industry has struggled with some grades of copper over the years. You know, at one point, one of the coppers that was used for, with NASA Forever was a Russian-sourced copper. Well, obviously that went away. So everyone in the additive industry has been, been struggling to find a replacement. And um, someone came to us, and we've been successful in printing this copper that is literally a,
1: a disaster to do anything with, and we're being successful with it. So there, of course, like we're looking at combustion chambers and rocket engine kind of components. That's the obvious application there, right? Uh, yes, for, the, for, the, for that material, yeah.
0: I'd say right now the biggest thing we're seeing, well, uh, titanium, ti 64 and 6061. And 6061, obviously, because none of the other additive processes do it well. You've got to go to that alsi Mag cast grade or you know, some yeah, crappy aluminum. Crappy yeah. die stupid cast alum- <laughs> stupid <laughs> aluminum, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shitty die cast aluminum. And the fact that we can do sixty sixty one and do it in a forged property and seventy seventy-five and you know, we're working on seventy fifty, and we're working on, you know, the uh, the two thousand series, which are the the unobtainables for most additive processes.
1: So I think that that's interesting. As build materials, you can go you you can go to the materials that we don't normally see, right? Correct. Um, uh, but you can also join materials, right? Like you you can yeah. make like a, uh, uh, which is also kind of weird. I don't really understand that either. But um, <laughs> how does that work? Uh,
0: well, I mean, it's it with with traditional friction stir welding, you can join you know lots of materials, whether they're similar or dissimilar, and if you think of um, space shuttle, you know, that's where I I always go back to some of the space shuttle parts where, you know, they were the evolution of friction stir, and that's when friction stir started gaining this giant scale. Well, now imagine friction stirring two pieces together require a very precise joint. Now imagine if the joint doesn't have to be precise. It could be a cast component to a machine component, and they could be melded together because it doesn't matter if it has some inaccuracies in it. If our bead height is one to two millimeters and our width is an inch, inch and a quarter, we can take up a lot of that variability.
2: Yeah. Okay. This is fun. (laughs) Um, Okay. I want to ask a silly, like, uh, you know, if I'm the military, a military, um, could I do crazy things like, you know a layer of steel and then a layer of depleted uranium and then another layer of steel for something you know for like a, a blast or for a tank piece absolutely of that nature
0: absolutely wow. okay. and if you, you know, There's the word.
1: <laughs> uh I just like you didn't use the word munition there max uh it's okay. no it's i like did not use the think word of munition. that at all because blast doors. that's, that's what everybody to. wants yeah uh, go on yeah
0: yeah, I think Joris, when you enter, you opened up with about the uh, the jointless haul program. You know that's been uh, that's been so exciting, and it's coming together. And the uh, the actual full scale machine uh, will be installed this summer. You know at one of the arsenals, and that machine has the print volume of thirty feet by twenty feet by twelve feet, and it can print and multi axis machine it in the same setup. To, to your question, Max, now imagine, you know, this is called the jointless hull. And and as I understand it, uh, all fatalities, almost all fatalities within tanks are due to explosions separating welded joints.
1: Or, so uh, that, or the head of the guy hitting the helmet or the head of the guy hitting the <laughs> side of the tank. No, <laughs> no, seriously. No, this is the biggest problem. The biggest problem is yeah. that. That's what, um, uh, I can't tell um, uh <laughs> that's the biggest problem. Uh, but but apart from that, the seams of the tank comes apart at the seam. So literally, the yeah. idea is to make a tank that's that's one piece, or at least the bottom half of it is one piece, right?
0: Yeah. If you had a monolithic hull, and you were able to use different materials to layer that to give yourself the you know blast resistance and deformity and yield and and all that stuff, yet wait a minute. We can use materials and reduce weight.
1: No, totally, totally. And then also, what I'm thinking is, I think you guys are also on this project with the Navy as well, because the Navy, of course, has the stuff it really wants to repair is really, really big for additive, then. And you also are working on stuff like that, right? For the Navy, right?
0: Yeah, we're uh, we're fully engaged with di- different areas within the, the Navy fleets, whether it be ships or subs. Um, When they got wind of the jointless hull machine, obviously, you know, they thought, oh shit, we need a machine that big too. So, subsequently, um, we've been doing a lot of different materials with them, and they're actually materials that nobody is 3D printing. And, you know, I walked in the door and go, why in the heck are we printing that? That's a crap steel material. And they're like, well, that's what goes on ships. And I was like, ah, okay, that makes sense so we're developing you know working with them to create you know applications of s- new materials that we've never done before and a lot of them are really challenging and i say that because uh, the melt technology has been around for you know 10 years but it's still really really nascent it's got a long it, it's got a long runway of where it can go so every time we get a new material there's an entire process to go through to try to qualify it
2: i'm just thinking about how you can print an entire sub hull eventually, obviously not right now, but that you could do an entire sub with no seams that you could significantly increase the depths and the capabilities of those systems.
0: Yeah. And that's where it's, it's so interesting because you, you, you said it exactly Is we sit in meetings and we go over, you know, the technology's capability today and everybody immediately goes to 10 to 20 years out on oh crap we can get here and it's like you're right do you have the money
2: (laughs) if you got the money we got the time (laughs) oh just got to move to connecticut and go sit on the (laughs) subways right (laughs) And, um...
0: and it's interesting because we're getting requests for very very large cylinders and you would think, wow, you can roll cylinders, you can, you know, forge cylinders, you can pinch them, you can do a lot of different things, but you can't do them on the scale that the meld technology can. You know, we jokingly say that our Z-axis is only limited by the size of a machine.
2: Well, Yeah. in the building, right? <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and uh... also like oil and gas pressure vessels would seem kind of really interesting. That's a really interesting bridging space as Yeah, absolutely.
0: We have two, uh, two employees who actually came from the oil and gas industry. And, you know, they're, they have lots of ideas. Um, Being a small company, we have to, uh, we have to go where the money is, we can't do a lot of rabbit holes, or, you know, we won't be here next month. But uh, where the technology is allowing the company to go is just phenomenal.
2: Right now, who who who's using it right now for applications? Is it mainly aerospace and and the military, the navy, and the army, or is there uh, other clients that you guys are engaging with now, or other industries, I should say?
0: Today, the bulk of the machines, the first machines, all went to universities and research labs, right? Because that's that's typically what happens. Uh, what we're seeing now is. Uh, aerospace and defense OEMs purchasing multiple machines based off of the we did testing, they got their first machine, and now they're like, "Oh oh wow, this can supply our raw materials. Um, it, it, we We take a lot of raw materials for granted. You know, in traditional machining, we'd buy bar stock up to you know whatever size, and it's readily available. But as soon as you get outside of a two foot by two foot cross section, That's not readily available, but with the meld process, you can take that smaller stock and convert it very quickly and very easily. So some of the OEMs are just merely looking to make their own internal forgings and and
2: billets. Hmm. And then because you're buying this meld stock, it must be relatively low cost as a result.
0: Yeah, I mean it's the traditional bar stock off the shelf. It's a known uh, production-priced material. One of the unique things that really drew me in, talking about material, is um, the ability to use not bar stock. So early on, there was a lot of development around meld using powder or even chips and shavings from machining processes.
2: Ooh, waste material, basically.
1: All right. So, so what other kind of things are we seeing then? Like, you know, repairing uh, navy ships, oil and gas. What are some other applications you're excited about? uh magnesium
0: uh, magnesium gearboxes specifically, uh, there's no additive process for magnesium except for meld and we're starting to see a request well we've already be- several years ago we started before I got there doing some repairs and now uh, those repairs are going through uh, flight worthiness testing.
2: why Why would you want magnesium? What's the benefit of magnesium?
0: Aircraft gearboxes are all magnesium housings, and if a bearing bore, or a flange wears out, they scrap the whole gearbox. And oh. they're not cheap. Yes.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine.
1: Helicopter gearboxes are very expensive. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but then I could also imagine that the the, the, the MEL process seems to be like, do I get like a you know are these layers like cleanly together? Are they like one totally the same material? Or is it just like are we getting kind of like a kind of like a, a not clean layer there?
0: yeah you know, there's no inclusions. they're fully dense um, mechanical properties meet same as the raw material that went in.
2: I was just wondering if there are any like big requirements in terms of like how you house it and stuff like that like does it does it need an argon you know container or something of that nature, or is this all kind of open air as you say it it sounds like it's quite simple, but obviously it's very complicated but
0: so most of your materials are open air. Uh, all the aluminums are open air. Titanium does require an argot, argon environment, um, and today we use – because of the size, we use typical argon bags like you would use in welding argon uh, or welding titanium components together. So we use something like that. If you think about the scale of the machines, it'd be really hard to build an enclosure on a machine that can print 30 feet by 20 feet by 12. (laughs) And that'd be a whole lot of argon to fill it
2: up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, start filling the
0: machine up. We'll come back next month and start printing.
2: Because the Russians used to do like pure oxygen welding, right? For for making their subs and stuff. Um, I I know it was very dangerous, (laughs) Um, but they would do that. So that's what I was wondering.
0: Yeah, we're we're learning a lot of things not to do and things that are successful in um, creating inert atmospheres just at the point of deposition. You still have oxide layers you've got to deal with once the hot part leaves from underneath the tool. So there's still a lot of development work there.
1: So I, I would think that then also you could like add on to things as well. And that could be really interesting to add on to materials and to augment things, right?
0: absolutely. Uh, especially if you think of something that uh, if if you normally machined a giant block to make a cylinder with some bosses on it, well, you can create the cylinder very cheaply in traditional methods and then just print the bosses on it.
1: And does that also mean that, that we can like add dissimilar things or we, can we do turbine blisk repair? That kind of stuff has like been done a lot with other technologies. Is that feasible or you think that kind of thing is way too delicate for this and we really need much, much larger parts.
0: Uh, today that's outside of the uh, resolution. And, you know, knowing blisks as well as I do from previous life, um, they don't like to, (laughs) they don't like to do anything unknown on a blisk, considering if a blisk comes apart, it usually would cut the plane in
1: half. Yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. So that's maybe way, way too much in the future. But, um, But then other stuff about repairing stuff, like, so could you repair a hole in a Navy ship? Is that a feasible thing?
0: Yeah, so right now we are working on a program to, I got to make sure I word this correctly, take our meld head, put it on a robot that can travel to a site and do repairs on a vehicle or a structure.
2: So it's almost like a gantry system that you transport?
0: Yeah. Have you guys ever been to IMTS and seen the FANIC booth? They have a robot that uh, is holding onto a Corvette and slinging it around. Imagine a robot of that scale with a meld unit on it on a i don't know a train car or a semi truck could pull up and and start doing repair of a massive vehicle or infrastructure
1: oh, wow well that that sounds very exciting, but then at the same time, like okay, are you going to develop the just the head and is somebody else going to do the integration or is somebody else going to develop a solution on top of that and where do you see the role of meld there
0: now meld has taken the role on doing the entire thing um, we have As all startups and focused on the technology have done a lot of integration and worked with a lot of uh, machine OEMs and do that. But as we evolve, we're our own entity and creating our own machines and we have our own machines we sell today that are meld built machines so The technology is one piece of it, but there are reactionary forces and controls that need to be very tightly contained, and and if we can have control over the whole system, it makes it easier.
1: Okay, but it would also slow your development time, right? It slows your time to market by a lot, right?
0: Yeah, we're just trying to staff up. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We're fortunate that we're located... um, very close to Virginia tech who's putting out a lot of good mechanical engineers.
1: Okay. Okay. Are, are you looking for anybody in particular? You don't always ask our community, right? If you're looking for particular roles, right? Um,
0: right now it's um, mechanical engineers, manufacturing engineers, and then we need a lot of meld technicians. And unfortunately they, you can't find anybody. So we have to make them. And uh, Nancy's had a, uh, she's got a huge focus on workforce development She's working with the state of Virginia. She's working with the U S Navy, uh, working with several colleges to put together programs to upskill our workforces for additive for advanced manufacturing. And I just kudos to the job she's been doing on that. It's, it's just
2: fantastic. So are you guys profitable at this point or are you still in like startup mode?
0: Uh, I'd say we're, we're coming out of startup mode. Um, I wouldn't go into financials on a on a podcast. We we are we are in that mode between startup and grown up, right? So okay. we are we've exceeded what a startup can do and now we're trying to staff and build infrastructure and processes and controls and quality systems to enable us to scale. And that's that's been my role since coming in, was working on how to build out the infrastructure that allows us to scale at a three x five x pace.
1: Okay, that, that's kind of interesting. And then and but now is a really terrible time to do to get financing, right? It's a very time, terrible time to find money. Is are are you now looking at just growing from your own means, or what's available to a startup nowadays that's trying to scale up?
0: Um, you know. We're very fortunate. And one of the reasons that I jumped on board with Nancy is Nancy is an amazing businesswoman. She has built Aeroprobe. She's built Meld. Um, she is the sole owner. There's no venture capitalists involved. Uh, she's done an amazing job bootstrapping this and managing money uh, very well, allowing uh, me to come in and start building this infrastructure out with, with you know, normal restrictions. You can't go crazy, but you've got to get things done. And she's, she's got the ability to support that.
2: Is there's no DARPA or government like funding on some level? I mean, it's, I, it's not the same, right? Cause, cause you're, it's a grant or something.
0: Correct. I mean, we've had, we have our share of SBIRs, STTRs, um, OAs. I mean, we have government contracts, but the government contracts don't, Fund expansion of the of the the business the government contracts fund projects you know specific projects so um, our commercial sales of equipment is uh, really high. I mean we've sold a lot lot when I came on board they had sold a lot more machines than I thought they would have in this short amount of time.
2: can you give us a, a vague number? Is it tens of machines hundreds of machines
0: it's in you know it's in the tens it'll hit the hundreds in the coming years.
1: But that's an extraordinary story because we've heard of people on the, that have gone like the the, the the raise lots of money route. We've heard of people that have kind of bootstrapped it. But it seems like Nancy's been able to keep a lot of control and a lot of ownership by, you know, doing grants and, and developing the business perhaps more slowly than she could have, but then with more like long-term perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, time is everything and you either have money or you have, or money gives you time, or you don't have money and it takes you a, a lo- lot longer to do it. And she's been very successful on shortening that that time horizon um, and managing the money very, very well.
1: So that sounds like really ambitious, like all the stuff you sounds really ambitious, but is there anything concretely that, uh, uh, that you hope to achieve in the next five years besides sell hundreds of machines, which is already great, of course. Is there anything you'd like to really, really get to, point you'd like to get to?
0: Yeah, I mean, right now we're in the process of of standardizing our machines, creating an entire COTS catalog so that it's a commercial off-the-shelf item for anyone. Our growth is to evolve the technology. You know, we're we've only scratched the surface. Its ability is amazing, but it has so much runway of growth. So we have an entire advanced programs group who's focused on advancing the technology along with our materials and process scientists. And then from the machine side i think the machines while the gantries and the bridges and and all the traditional things are always going to happen i think the machines are going to become more application specific and the uh, thinking about robots and going on site and and doing repairs on site i think that's that's the direction we're heading is things that do specific jobs not um, a monkey wrench that can do everything. And that's the that's always been the issue with additive. And Hans Longer with EOS a few years ago at Amug had had give a presentation and he had said something about we've looked at 3D printers as it's a tool that can do anything. And what we're finding is is we need tools to do specific things. And that's how we can economize these and we can put these out in mass numbers.
2: Yeah, no, that that makes sense. And I get also how you guys have this fun internal problem of thinking 10 years ahead of what will be uh which is great but i can see it like i can see shipyards if you will where one machine is just there to build giant chunks or pieces of hulls and another machine is welding those hull pieces together and so forth and so on and and you can almost create an assembly line of of that nature um so that's that's cool but i also see your problem with it (laughs)
0: I always, you know, when I watch like sci-fi stuff and I see the size of the Enterprise or some of these giant spaceships, it's like, how the hell they make that? Well, they're going to meld it. It's how they're going to make it? It's the only <laughs> thing you can do something that big.
2: It's just, an, it's just an ad for you guys. Well, it's, and yeah. and if you
0: if you look at our website and you look at our machines, every one of our products is named after a Star Wars Star Wars droid.
2: Oh, nice! Very funny.
0: <laughs> our newest machine coming out is three PO.
2: I just hope Lucas doesn't come after you. Uh, oh, it's Disney. It's Disney now. Uh,
1: so. yeah, well, we didn't. We didn't
0: use C three PO. We just said three PO. Could be anything. Could be anything.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds absolutely wonderful. And and thank you so much for being here today, uh, Tim. And thank you for being here today, Max as well. Thank you, Joris.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure, Joris. Max. It's always it's always exciting to talk to you guys. It's never a dull moment.
1: and uh thank you for listening this is another episode of the 3d pod and uh enjoy your day
0: you've been listening to the 3d pod for more information on what you just heard or to subscribe visit
1: www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com